0: Hey, take your Bible tonight and open it to the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. Um, I want to just look at just a a passage of Scripture tucked away there in the back of the Word of God, or at least in the back of this short book in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want to pay attention to just two verses that uh, that I might be of some encouragement to you. But in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 follow with me as as i read and i'm reading from the new american standard we urge you brethren admonish the unruly encourage the faint hearted help the weak be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And then verse 16 says, rejoice always. I've titled this message, if you're taking notes tonight, ministering to each other. Ministering to each other. How do you actually minister to one another in the body of Christ? How do you restore someone let's say if they're caught in a trespass or maybe I could ask the question how do you respond to difficult people and really I when I say you I am talking to you okay and, and in other words, I'm not putting this out to the elders. I'm not putting this out to the deacons. I'm speaking directly to you. In other words, you in this church at Grace Bible Church have a responsibility to each other. I think so often we grow up, and I do, in a paradigm that Rick and I grew up in, that everything looks and goes back to the leadership and back to the elders and so forth. And there's some truth to that in the scripture. But the the scripture really presents a paradigm as you well know and have been well taught on a priesthood of the believers. So when I address this tonight, I'm talking to you individually. But how do you help people in the body of Christ? What is your responsibility to others in this body? How do you confront someone in sin? I could change the circumstance. How do you actually encourage someone in the midst of a trial? How do you come alongside someone who is burdened? How do you handle these different situations in the body of Christ? How do you just encourage each other in the body of Christ? How do you engage one another in the body of Christ? I mean, what do you say to a man who walked into my office just not long ago who lost his wife of 42 years? That's hard. Or when a pastor called me and uh, he told me that a woman at his church showed up on his doorstep who was physically abused again by her husband. What do you do in that situation? Well, I I told him, I said, man, I'd round up a posse of guys and go after the guy myself. But these situations happen. What do you do there? What do you do with the guy who told me? He said, Scott, I don't know why. He goes, I just start breathing heavy and I have these panic attacks. I've had a lot of people tell me that. A lot of people tell me they just, they start getting dizzy. They got to hold on to something. They've got to sit down. They breathe. I mean, what do you do with people in the body of Christ? And what I want to do from this text is provide you, really, because I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, mothers. I'm talking to you, fathers. If you're a student, I'm talking to you. If you live with someone in a dorm. But what's a biblical strategy for working with different kinds of people in the body of Christ? How do you even address these issues in your own family? How do you address your son? How do you address your daughter through a biblical paradigm? How do you address your boyfriend or your girlfriend or a dating relationship or a co-worker? What does the word of God say to this? Now, I read the passage there in Thessalonians. Let me just take about a minute or two to set the context for you, okay? As we read in verses 14 and 15, the context is obviously the day of the Lord. If you look back up in chapter 5 and verse 1, it says there, now as to the times... And the epics or epochs, brethren, you have no need of anyone uh, or anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well, and here it is, verse 2, that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So the context here is the day of the Lord. When I see that little phrase there, the thief in the night. How many of you remember that movie, The Thief in the Night? Do you, remember, did you ever see that? Man, there was a, an older movie back in the 70s. It was about the second coming and the rapture. And when I saw the thief in the night, man, I wanted to become a Christian. It just scared me so bad. But, but here, he says, you know the day of the Lord. It's gonna come like a thief when you're not expecting it. Look at verse three. That while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like the labor pains upon a woman with a child and they will not escape. But you, brethren are not in the darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you all are all sons of light and sons of the day, and we are not of night or of darkness, and so forth. And so the theme here is set in the context of the day of the Lord. Now, in light of that instruction, what does Paul tell this church to do in us. Look down in verse 11. He finishes that little section there and says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So he tells us to encourage there. And then what Paul does from that point is really provide a series of duties, four pastors in 12 and 13. Look there just for a second. He says, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, okay? Now, listen, just right off my feet. I didn't think about this till right now. I can tell you this. You have a pastor that's coming up on 30 years, And I just want to tell you, he told me to say this. He's probably going to be embarrassed that I'm saying, you appreciate him and his family. A man who stayed in that kind of spot for 30 years tells me a lot about his character. And what Paul tells this church here, he says, listen, in verse 12, you need to appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And I can only tell you doing what Brian has done for 25 years Preaching. There's just a word that I think of it, um, Brian, when I think about it, MacArthur told me it's this word, it's one word. It's just relentless. I mean, you give your goods on Sunday, and then you're there with a blank paper on Monday, and you're starting over, and you're not just doing a service in the morning. You're doing a service in the evening, and so here Paul just says, for you as a flock, you're to diligently lay, you know, appreciate those who labor among you, not just Brian, the pastors, the elders, and they have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, verse 13, that you esteem them, very highly in love because of their work. And then Paul would exhort you, verse 13, to live in peace with one another. So listen, you have... Um, I'm a guest here, I can say that. A responsibility to your pastor, to your elder team, to follow this commandment. So there's a series of duties for those who are in ministry and your response to them. But then what he does in our text tonight is he provides a series of duties for you with one another. And the thing I don't want you to miss tonight is verse 14. Look at that opening phrase. Do not miss this. He says, we, the ideal is plead with you. We beg you. We urge you. And then this phrase, you can underline it, brethren, I do not want you to miss that because Paul now is not talking about responsibilities for the church leaders. He's talking about your responsibility. He's saying that you have a responsibility not just to leadership, but you have a responsibility to one another. And so when Paul goes in and launches there at verse 14, he's really talking to you. And I want to be very clear that what I preach on here tonight is not reserved for the pastoral office. It is not reserved for elders only. It is not a passage that is directed to deacons. Honestly, it is a passage directed towards you. It is directed towards the brethren, okay? This is for all the church to be put into practice. There's some who think this is for leaders, but the, the word there is brethren. Certainly a leader needs to model the exhortation in 14 and 15, but you are responsible in the primary emphasis of this passage. So this is a message for all in the body of Christ. Now in this passage, there are different conditions that need to be addressed in working with people. There are, as I read earlier, the unruly, there's the faint hearted, and there's the weak. In other words, you've got different conditions. You, you can see they're unruly. They're faint hearted. There's people who are called weak, okay? Each needs intention. And it's very imperative to employ the correct counsel to those whom we interact with on a weekly basis. We could greatly frustrate someone if we admonish the weak and don't help them. So I could ask you tonight what is to be done? And what Paul does is provide three appropriate responses for dealing with people in the body of Christ. Okay? And in each response in dealing with people, there's a, de- a condition that he describes and a command that he wants us to put into practice. A condition and a command. And as I walk through this, right, I want you to be thinking of the people in your life. I want you to be thinking of the people whom this relates to. I want you to be praying that maybe as you look at this, have I handled people right? And I guess I would just exhort you as I exhort my own heart, this is God's flock. I, just as one man i don 't want to handle his sheep wrong, and neither do you because you have a responsibility to them so let 's look at the the first condition there, there's the, the command i 'll just put it is admonish the unruly. Look at it there in verse fourteen. He says, "We urge you, brethren, you see it there It says, admonish." the unruly. So there's a condition described. Um, I have the word unruly. I think the ESV says you've got some people who are idle. In other words, there's some in the body of Christ who are unruly. They're, They're disorderly. In fact, it would even pinch on the side, They're rebellious. That word for unruly, or if you have an ESV, that word for idle is, it's a military term. And it literally meant, and it does mean, to be out of step. It's the ideal of to be out of rank. You've got a soldier, if you will, or soldiers marching in line, But you've got one soldier who's out of line, who's out of rank. That's the picture, that's the metaphor that Paul's giving here. It's someone who broke rank. They're idle, they're unruly. In fact, just glance to the right, 2 Thessalonians, just maybe turn a page. You'll see the word used there. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Watch this, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads, here's our word, an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you have received from us. So you've got some in the body of Christ, who were flat out unruly? We could say they're just flat out disobedient. In fact, Paul said in Second Timothy here, or excuse me, in Second Thessalonians three six, you're to keep away from that particular brother who leads that kind of life. And so you can see it's a it's a really gritty term. Look over at Second Thessalonians, um, or actually it's in First Thessalonians, I believe, in four eleven where it says to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, tend to your own business, work with your own hands, just as we commanded. The thought would be there is you've got to work, quiet life, but you've got some who are unruly. So let me just put it in a paradigm. These people are irresponsible. They are disorderly. And it refers to those who are neglecting their daily or spiritual duties. They're just bottom line out of order. They are, in a word, sinning. And within the context, you remember in Thessalonians, and some were neglecting their duties and kind of falling idle into corrupt disciplines because of their expectation of the second coming. Now, you've got people who are unruly. You say, what am I to do with people in that condition? Look again at the text, at the command. Look at the command there in verse 14. It says there to admonish them or to admonish the unruly. In other words, when you see people in your own life, in your own church, you are to Admonish them. It means to warn them. And it's the ideal of warning them with understanding. It is to be done with humility. But make no mistake about it. It is to be done with firmness. In fact, that word there in... Thessalonians, admonish is simply the Greek word that we use often for biblical counseling. It is the word nuthateo, and it means to warn. It means to advise. The thought there in this term is to exhort them. In other words, you've got people who are unruly, and you are to counsel them to avoid sin. Maybe in some cases to even cease from sin. In other words, there's people who need to be warned. They need to be stirred up to action. Those in disobedience need to be called to obedience, and they need to be instructed. In fact, if you just glance back a couple verses at 1 Thessalonians 5.12, the words used there when it says, we ask you, request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you, my text says instruction, but it says here in another translation, who admonish you. So here the thought is, we've got people we need to admonish them, to warn them of their pending consequences and their actions, okay? So you you say, well, how does that interact? Well, listen, if you're talking to somebody, and they're in sin, Okay? You don't sit with them and say, hey, it'd be really nice if you would do this. You are to warn them. You are to counsel them. You are to advise them. I think of one time sitting with a young man who was struggling with the sin of homosexuality. And I sat with him for a good three hours as he began to share with me a little bit of his background. And finally it got to the point where I... I instructed him that he needed to follow in obedience to the Lord. On, And I'll never forget, he just got up from his seat and bolted out the door to never be seen again. listen, if you're talking to somebody who's living in a lifestyle contrary to the scripture, you're not to pacify them. You're not to tell them it's okay. You've got somebody, students living in the dorm, claiming to have a relationship with Christ, but at the same time living in sin, you have a responsibility to warn them. If you know of somebody who is lying, or if somebody is stealing, or if somebody who is involved in the sin of drunkenness, or somebody who's involved in the sin of pornography, those are our sins, and you are to admonish them. You, they're idle. They're unruly. I think of the young man who came up to me at the master's college, and he says, Pastor, I have a problem. This is just an example, okay? I said, well, what's your problem? He says, I'm drinking. I said, well, that, you know, that, that's obviously you're underage. You, you shouldn't be drinking. That's not legally right that you're drinking. But in addition to that, you're a Christian. And in addition to that, you signed the contract. I said, furthermore, just, I listened to him. In fact, I can still see him today. His dad, his dad was a baseball player uh, that I knew. And, and uh, I said, by the way, how do you drink? He says, oh, I just walk around in the dorm. I have a Coke can, and in the Coke can, I pour my alcohol. Nobody knows that I'm drinking, but he walks around in the dorms at night, drinking alcohol, all hide- hidden behind the Coke can, Now the question is, what do you, oh brother, oh really, how are you doing really? No, that's not my tactic with him. If somebody is an open sin like that, that's just a simple illustration. You have a responsibility to them to warn them, to advise them, to rebuke them very well. There's a time that a firm rebuke is to be given to those in the fellowship living in a disorderly manner. So the question I would pose to you tonight, do you need to go to someone and talk to someone? Is there somebody that fits this bill that maybe you've just been turning your cheek to it or turning your eye to it or not quite sure what you should do? I'm telling you tonight by the authority of the word of God, you can't be silent. Now, I'm not telling you to be the spiritual Gestapo, okay? I'm not telling you to wear a badge on your arm that you're the monitor in the hall. But I am telling you, you can't just let things go if people are in open and flagrant sin. Okay, I had to sit down a couple months ago. With a family, I've got to be careful how I say this, I, I, um, I know her, and her husband was having an affair, okay? So how did, how did you know that? Well, she told me. Well, how did she find out? She tracked the cell phone and tracked the cell phone down to this woman's house that he was going to, okay? So I sat with them in my office, me and the two of them. uh, Now, I have a responsibility to that man, but my responsibility is very clearly. Adultery is a sin, and I looked across my desk to him, and I said, get back in your house. You see? You say, well, Scott, that's pretty strong for you to say. No, I'm telling you, you should say that to that guy. I should say it as a pastor, but I told him to get back in his house. He says, well, I don't, I don't know if I can come back. I said, she's right here. She'll take you back even though you've sinned. I said, you need to get back in your house. He didn't get back in his house. He probably thought I was crazy. He probably thought, who's this guy? I I knew him a little bit, but my point is you have people who claim Christ. They might need to be admonished, but that's not the only people. There's a second condition. I don't want to spend too long there. You admonish the unruly, but look what it says in verse 14. You encourage the faint-hearted. Listen, there's some people who aren't, they're not unruly. Better get this right. They're the opposite of that. They are here in the new American standard, faint-hearted, In other words, there's people in the body of Christ, the best I can say of what this Greek word means is they're worried. There's people discouraged. There are people that we minister with and walk amongst in these halls that are uh, fearful. They're just, the thought of the word, they're faint hearted, is to be overwhelmed by life itself. In fact, really, if you dig into the etymology of the word, these people are timid, is what the word means. In other words, you got people in the body, literally, in in fact, in the Greek word, are short of soul, and they become discouraged. They become despondent. Sometimes the, the picture that runs around in my mind is Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. I mean, Eeyore just always had a problem, oh, you know, and he just went on. There's, these people despair in the face of adverse circumstances. It could be their own sin. It could be just the difficulty of living the Christian life. I, I had a man call me, it's a grown man in my flock, scared to death to go in to get nasal surgery because he had to go under anesthesia. That's kind of, Scott, what do you mean he's scared? He was scared. He had to go under that anesthesia. But I want you to know, one thing I wasn't to do with him is to admonish him. That man was faint hearted. Some people get faint hearted over a looming financial payment or a difficult meeting. The idea here behind this word is that they're on the verge of giving up. In fact, that word faint hearted was used in Isaiah 54 6 to speak of a rejected wife. Now, you got people who are faint hearted in the body. That's the condition. Look at the command. Look at verse 14. It says there in the word of God that you are to what? encourage them. You are to give courage to them. You are to give hope to them. You are, if you will, to stimulate them to press on, to encourage them to endure, to give them the extra help to live the Christian life. And it really expresses kind of a tender concern for them. In other words, I want to be very clear. Be very careful. You do not rebuke these people. You do not exhort these people. You are, in that word there, in that command, to give them hope, to give them encouragement. And the Lord only knows how many times I have failed in my own life, in my own shepherding. I think of a woman not too long ago who's a dear friend of mine and my wife's, our family, going through a horrible divorce, husband, multiple adulterer, multiple adulterer. And she wanted to meet with me, and I probably, in my better judgment, looking back, maybe just shouldn't have done it. You say, well, why? Well, because I went to the Philippines on a trip to be a pastor, you know? And I was in the Philippines speaking at a pastor's conference, and in fact, I got the email maybe while I was in the, ph- in the Philippines and said, okay, I'll do it right when I got back. I think I was landing on Monday, and then I would meet with her and another pastor, and an older woman on Tuesday. And I shouldn't have done it. I just, that's foolish on on my part. So I get back on Monday, I land from being in the Philippines. I land from being at a pastor's conference where there's just a lot of testosterone anyways going on at that. Just fired up, you know, guys, you know, take the kingdom and all that stuff. So I get back. I was with this professor from the seminary, Montoya. He kind of engenders that himself as well. So I step into this meeting and this woman begins to tell me of what's going on. It's nothing new. And I listen, and I just said, Debbie, here's what you need to do. You need to do this. You need to cut this off. You need to just stop here. You need to stop communicating with them here. And, and I'm thinking, I'm exhorting her, right? So we prayed. The meeting's over. I go from the meeting. I thought, well, hey, that went pretty well. So I catch up with my wife, my wife, The next day, Scott, how'd that go, meeting with Debbie? Oh, Patty, it went really well. It went really well. She said this, and what'd you say? I said, I said this, and then she said this, and I told her that she needed to do this, and she needed to do this, and then, Scott, did you tell her this? I said, yeah, I did tell her that. Scott, did you also say this to her? And it wasn't anything wrong, but I can see my wife's face right before me kind of said, really, Scott? really? Yeah, and then I said this, Patty, and then Scott, did you also say this? And I said, yeah, I said that, and I could just see my wife's face just crestfallen, and so I had to look at my wife and say, you don't think I handled that right, do you? She goes, no, you didn't handle that right, and I'll tell you, as a shepherd. You want to love your people and care for your people. And I'm just telling you, I was big time lame on that one. Is that the word L, the L, the, wherever you're sitting? I just blew it. So here I am, this pastor of her, my friend. It's not over when my wife tells me that. I have to go back to her and say, Debbie, I just want you to know, as your shepherd, I am just so sorry. Would you just please, uh, you know, I mean, I'm supposed to be the pastor who gets it right. I handled her wrong. I'm telling you that. I had to apologize to the Lord. Lord, forgive me. She's a sheep you put into my care. And you say, well, Scott, why'd you handle it wrong? Because I'm telling you, all that woman needed was my encouragement, right? She wasn't the one in sin. She probably needed me just to sit with her, just to listen to her, to weep with her, to encourage her, to fortify her. Here in this word, encourage her. And I thought I did everything but encourage her. I discouraged her. And it was so, I had to apologize to her. Debbie, please forgive me for being a lame pastor this is why the sheep are so delicate, aren't they? You got somebody who's unruly. You need to go to them with a firm, humble, but firm word and just admonish them. But if you got somebody in your flock who's defeated because of trial or circumstance or finances, you need to find a way to encourage them. But well, that's not all Paul says. Not everybody's the same. Look on. There's a third condition there. It says there in verse 14, you admonish the unruly, one. You encourage the faint-hearted. But here's a third type of person. You, it says, help the weak. And so here's a condition described. The condition is weak. It's a little different than somebody who's faint-hearted. It's the ideal of being spiritually weak or just frail. You, you meet some people who are just, the ideal is without strength. It could mean that they're without physical strength. It could mean they're, they're just spiritually weak. Uh, look over in verse 14 of Romans. Look back at Romans 14. Do you remember this word there? In Romans 14, remember when Paul addresses that with the stronger and the weaker brethren in the church? And he says there in Romans 14.1, he says now, Paul says to the church at Rome, except, 14.1, the one who is, there's our word, what? They're weak in faith. In other words, there's some people who come into this flock, and again, you understand why I'm not talking to the elders? I'm talking to you. And I mean that to encourage you. There's people that come in that you rub shoulders with and sit with. They're weak, either physically, I I believe spiritually. Here, it says in 14, except the one who's weak in faith, their faith isn't strong. In in fact, go over just a book to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Do you remember where the word was used there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 7, I believe it is, where that whole thing with meat offered to idols, it says in 8-7, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, having been accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as it were, sacrificed sacrifice to an idol. Now watch this. And their conscience being, what? Weak they have a weak conscience. So there's, so there's some people who have a weak faith. Other people have a weak conscience. Glance down, I believe it's in verse 12. And so by sinning, eight twelve against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ, Verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And so you can see there's people who have a weak faith and here a weak conscience. Sometimes they're weak because of a lack of knowledge. Sometimes they're weak because of a lack of trust in God. Some are just timid and weak in the faith. They lack stability. They lack endurance. And I just wanna tell you, there is a place For the weak in the body of Christ, right? And you who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are weak. And you, if you are strong, have a duty towards them. You cannot simply abandon them or ignore them. Listen, the weak are part of God's redeemed Then you say, well, what are we to do with them? Well, go back to Thessalonians now. You have a responsibility and so do I with them. In 1 Thessalonians, back there in chapter 5, it tells us this in verse 14. You are to help them. Help them. The, The word just means to hold them up. To, to prop them up, if you will. And, and, and the ideal of the word to help is you cleave to them. That's what I meant when you don't abandon them. You cleave to them. You come along their side. Give them practical and spiritual help to them. But whatever you do, you don't abandon them. You don't leave them alone, alone. You have a responsibility to sustain them. You, at Grace Bible, have a responsibility, if you will, to put your arms around the weak and hold them up. Do you remember when Paul said in Acts 20 and everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And so the weak need to know that they are accepted, that they can come to you, that we are to be sensitive to them. I'm thinking of Paul in Romans 15:1, where it says, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. This is the church. This is the body of Christ. You come alongside them. You give them spiritual and practical guidance and advice. And you say, how do you do that, Scott? You do that by your personal interest in them. Man, I just saw, met a guy here. I don't know if he's in here this morning. Just walk through multiple surgeries, multiple surgeries. You show interest in them. You show compassion to them. Sometimes you just let your presence be by them. Help the weak. I have a friend, a dear friend. Rick, you know him. A few years back, I came back from Chicago, back to California, and I know this guy. I've known this guy for 25 years. I would say I knew him as a godly man, a godly man, very godly, young, single man. And this man, yeah, he just was wrong. He just was in sin. He got involved with a young lady, not only just on a spiritual level, you understand, he got involved with a young lady on a physical level. All the while, at the same time, he's a leader in this ministry. He was a leader for me. He was a leader in the ministry that he was in. And I'm just telling you flat out, he blew it. He, he sinned, okay? There's just no other way to say it. And you know, when you're a leader and you sin, sometimes the hammer drops even harder. Is that fair? So I come back into town to California to pastor. And I have a buddy who calls me and says, hey, you better pursue so-and-so, this guy. I said, why? They said, because Scott, he's not sure if he could go on anymore. Now, let me explain. The sin got exposed. The relationship was cut off. The relationship was ended. That was taken care of. I'm talking six months later. And this particular brother was weak. You say, well, Scott, but he was in sin. Yeah, he was in sin. But it got exposed. He confessed it. Six months later, listen, this guy doesn't know if he can continue the Christian life. This guy doesn't know. You understand what I'm saying? If life is worth living, okay? That's what I mean. He's on the verge. I lost it all. The whole carpet was pulled out, Scott. I said, well, listen, brother. You you know, the Lord forgave you. I forgive you. And if Christ forgives you, you're forgiven, brother. You need to move on. He said, Scott, I don't know if I can move on. I said, well, why is that? He said, a pastor came up to me at this particular church, and he told this guy, he said, you're the worst failure this church has had in the last 15 years. Now, listen, I'm telling you, you can devastate somebody with that word, can you not? He said the same pastor came up to him and said, hey, you no longer need to wear a suit. I said, he didn't say that to you. He said, yeah, he told me not to wear a suit. I said, why can't you wear a suit on Sunday? He told him, he said, because leaders wear a suit and you're no longer a leader. And I'm telling you, when I called him, he wasn't sure if life was worth living. And what I'm telling you tonight is if we're, me too, if we're not careful, you could devastate somebody with your words. And if you got somebody who is so weak that they don't even know if they can live, and you've got somebody communicating that to him, he might as well maybe end it. Listen, we've got to be very careful. You say, well, Scott, what are you arguing for? I'm telling you and myself, you've got to be a doctor of the soul. You better pray. Lord, are they unruly? Lord, are they faint-hearted? Lord, are they weak? This guy was in sin, but at this point, he was so weak. In fact, basically, that one pastor said, you are a loser. Loser. Listen, you could crush someone with a comment like that. Now. I would think Paul would be done, but he's not done. Would you just look on? We're not quite done. He says, you got to help the weak. And then I wish he wouldn't have said this, but he did. I really wish. He said, do you see this in verse 14? Be patient with spiritual people. Oh, no, sorry. That's not what it says. What does it say? Be patient with what? Everyone. Oh, did he, Paul, did you have to say that? You know what the word patient, it just, you understand, it just, it's the Greek word macrothumia, okay? And to be macrothumia is to be patient. It literally means to have a very, very long fuse, okay? If we said someone was hot or angry, we'd say, man, that guy blew a what? A fuse. Or we sometimes say, man, that guy's got a short what? fuse. Patience is the opposite. Patience is this. You have to have a very long fuse. Do you see it? With everyone. It's the opposite of having a quick fuse. Okay. In fact, look over it, look down just the next verse at verse 15. No wonder he says that. Be patient with everyone. Verse 15, see that no one repays one another with evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and all people. Listen, anger, it, it, you got to be careful when you're helping people. You can get angry with people if they just don't do what you say, you can get irritable. I mean, that, guy, that same father who blew me off in my office, I saw him, I don't know, a few weeks back, shook his hand, Listen, I can't can't let that get me. I have to be patient with that guy. I I admonished him. But listen, maybe the Lord's going to work in his heart. But listen, any kind of anger and irritability and unforgiving spirit will create dissension in the body of Christ. Listen, you have a responsibility in your home, fathers, when it says that the fruit of the spirit, you know this, is love, joy, peace, and what? What? Patience. If you're walking in the Spirit, you will have a very long fuse. Do you remember the love chapter in First Corinthians 13, where it says that love is, what, patient and kind. In fact, go, just look, uh, look over at 2 Timothy for one second, if you're serving the Lord, in 2 Timothy 2.24, I love this, where Paul says... To Timothy and 2 Timothy 2.24, that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, and what? Patient when, what? Wronged. You know who models that? Your pastor. He models that far better than me. And so I pray, Lord, just help me be patient with everyone help me be patient with people in the body of Christ listen we can talk the buzzword is and Brian i don't think you necessarily use it it's not a bad word but the buzzword in the east in the evangelical circles is community and we can talk all we want about community but if we don't love people we're really shallow aren't we i'm just being honest with you i remember one time rick and i were young men And uh, we're not so young anymore. But we were, if if I had a name for Rick and I when we were young in ministry, I'd call us the sons of thunder. I mean, if there was a truth to be lived out, we were gonna go after people. And we had a guy on our staff where we served fall immorally. He was wrong. Had to remove him as the pastor. And I remember being really a loved man uh, Rick and I would say a great leader, but you know, when you set a high standard like that and you fall, then the hammer falls even harder like in that other account, but this guy was even above that. He was a staff pastor and an elder, and so we had to remove him. So we're there at the prayer time with the elders before the the communion service when this was going to happen, and we we said, to John MacArthur, yeah, you got to do it today. You got You got you to tell the body today. You know, so we're in there. So I'm sitting on the front row that day, and uh, the service comes. He doesn't do it in his prayer. Doesn't say anything to the body. He he gets to the front of his message. He he doesn't remove the man there. He he gets to the body of his message. He says nothing there. He closes in prayer, and I'm like, is he gonna punt on this? Now, you know, who who am I? You know, what an arrogant young man I was. I thought, is he going to punt on this? So he prays and he says, oh, right before you're dismissed, I just want to tell you one thing about so-and-so on our staff. We had to just have him step away. Just very soft, very kind, no really amount of details, not much shared, and and just walked off the platform. And I just sat there like this. And so Rick and I came in on Monday morning. We're like, man, Rick, was, was that what you thought? I mean, I thought he would light that guy up. I thought he would bury that guy. You know, I mean, the, the guy sinned. I mean, we're, so Rick and I, what do we do? We're out of here. Let's go. We're going right up to the throne of John MacArthur's office. So there we go. Just you knock on his door. Come on in, man. What can I do for you? Well, John, it was kind of how you handled it yesterday. Well, well, what did you want me to do, man? Well, we just thought you'd be stronger. We thought you'd have a little more heat to you. We thought you'd bring a little more fire, you know? And he said, no. Rick, what did he say? Love covers a multitude of sins. And he said, you know what, man? I didn't want to bury him. He's useful to the Lord's kingdom at some place at some time. And we saw his gentleness come out. So Rick and I just kind of turned around and kind of walked out. <laughs> hey, Rick, we're idiots, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're, we're idiots, you know. And, we're, and, you know, once again, he was right and we were wrong. But I want you to know, as you hear his fire for the truth, you say, did he do what he needed to do? Yes. But I saw a tenderness in him to be patient with everyone. And love covers a multitude of sins. He didn't compromise, obviously. He's not going to do that. But I just saw, and I just thought, Scott, you're such an arrogant young man. You, you just sometimes think you, you've got it all right. And I just, I'm pierced by this, that you've got to have a very long fuse with everyone you said well Scott how does that work out if you need to admonish someone yes but in the midst of admonishing them you well I'll show you look over to second Thessalonians does it say it there in second Thessalonians there it is I don't know how to quite balance all this. He says in 2 Thessalonians three fourteen, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Now this is the one. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a what? Brother. You admonish him, but he's not an enemy. You might be a brother in, in the Lord's economy. You never know what the Lord will do in his life. But listen, you have a responsibility and I do. So I just ask you tonight, is there somebody that comes to my mind, your mind, that you need to admonish Is there somebody you need to encourage? Is there somebody you need to help? And is there somebody in some circumstance that you need to be patient with all men? May God give us grace to follow that, amen? Why don't you bow your head with me as we close. Thank you for listening so patiently. I know we're a little over time here, but just as you bow your head, is there somebody that the Lord just brings to mind? maybe just that you need to go to and just really, nutheteo, admonish them with humility but firmness, warning them of the consequences. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just somebody who's so faint-hearted, just so many trials, so many struggles, so many surgeries, so many trials in the the fanfare of life, and they, they just need you and you're to encourage them. Maybe you just need to encourage someone tonight. Maybe you need to call someone in this precious body tomorrow. Maybe you need to jot a letter to someone. Maybe there's someone who's just weak, and you just need to help them. Maybe there's those people you've already talked to, and they, they, they agitate you a little bit, and you just need to have a real long fuse and walk in the Spirit. Lord, This is your precious body. I'm just simply a guest and an under shepherd. And Lord, we want to take care of your people and love your people. Would you show us, show me, show the body how to do that. Lord, help us handle your sheep so sensitively to never err on one side or the other. And Lord, all I can think in the midst of it is Jesus always handled people perfectly. And so, Lord, would you give us the mind and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ who can deal with the woman who was caught in her adultery and tell her to go sin no more. But, Lord, just got rid of all the legalistic righteous people, self-righteous people around him. Help us be like Jesus Help us have his heart. Help us walk in your spirit. And Lord, above all, would you just help us have a long-suffering attitude so that we have the meekness of Christ and yet the firmness at the same time. Lord, help us go from here walking in obedience. We ask this now, Father, and would pray that you'd build up this precious flock in your holy word, in Christ's name, amen.